magic. Um, how many here have ridden a unicycle? <laughs> Successfully. <laughs> Or far. <laughs> I've tried. It's really hard. Just one little tire piece is connecting to the ground, and everything else is wobbling and spinning and until all of you meet the ground. <laughs> That's been my experience. But now, if you just add a tiny other piece of tire, like in a bicycle, if there are two wheels... It is such a difference. And by the time your most children are four, five, six, seven, they can ride a two-wheel bicycle. I remember that exhilarating feeling when I could out-bike my training wheels. They were worthless. It was that sense of freedom. So I'm asking that we consider a unicycle and a bicycle as uh, an imperfect, but an analogy for what it, what it means when an institution relies on only one part of its population. And that can be divided in a whole bunch of different ways, but just for today. Let's say a unicycle is what it's like if an institution relies on a single gender. If only one gender pretty much has the power and control and it's a bicycle able to go faster, farther, uh, without as many scraped elbows and broken collarbones when there are two wheels. So I bring that up because Hope Church is doing something historic in its own history in that in next month on April 17th, they're going to install a female minister, which is a first for Hope. You called me back in May, and that was the very first time that Hope had called a woman. So the question is, does that make any difference? Hope Church has always had women and men in partnership with power and leadership. And it wasn't far. In fact, if you look at all of the names on our charter back there, all the people who first met and signed up and said, we are making Hope Church a thing, a glorious thing. We have dreams and visions. Who knew that 50 years later, almost 50 years later, it is going strong? And there is a mix of men and women. So there has always been two wheels on the ground here, in a sense. And it wasn't long in Hope's history that you had a board president who was a, who was a woman, Irene McKee. Some of you still know her. So... I mention this just because there is something historic, and I don't know if and what it means. We are here to figure that out in the next years to come. Same sort of vision. We belong to a, a merging of religious traditions of the Unitarians and the Universalists, and those, both of those Christian traditions were early adopters of women as ministers and preachers. So the very first ordained preaching woman was Olympia Brown. And I'm trying to picture this. This is in 1863. So this is smack dab in the middle of the Civil War. So is it because there weren't many men around? 
or um, things were changing just because war does that. But she was the first ordained, had gone to seminary, had gone to St. Lawrence Seminary. And um, she preached for decades. She, was, uh, she went out west, married, had children. That was considered, if you were going to be a woman minister, it was assumed that you would not have family. They take up a lot of time. They do. <laughs> I have friends who are young and female ministers, and I don't know how they balance all they do, but they do. And she, as many of those early universalist ministers, and then ultimately Unitarian, um, in the 1870s, a Unitarian female minister was ordained, they also were heavily involved in the suffragette movement and getting women to vote. And Olympia Brown was one of the few who actually lived long enough into the 1920s that she actually got to vote. So she reflected back at the end of her life what it was like to be a female minister and work for, for voting and to be able to vote. And she said, it was like able, we were able to open the gates of heaven and free 27 million women so that they had voices and could participate in all of life, not just in raising a family, but in thinking and voting. I mention all that because Tuesday is International Women's Day, and March is International Women's History Month. And the theme for International History Day is... um, Parity, pledging for parity, pledging for gender parity, that we've made progress, but there are still an extraordinary number of women and young girls who don't have freedom, don't have choices, don't have an education. And it's a push to make those changes happen faster. So I, don't, I actually don't know what being a woman minister over time will mean here. And what, uh, even if it has any meaning, if, if the first um, presidential candidate for a, a major party is female. You know, we've had uh, an African-American president, and that has changed things and also brought up how slowly things are to change and that we still have an extraordinary amount of work to do with racial justice. So the same is true with women in leadership. We have made great strides, but we have further to go. I am um, thinking about International Women's Day and what it could mean, I pulled out a book called Half the Sky. And that phrase comes from a Chinese saying that women hold up half the sky. So I want to thank all the men for the half they've been holding up for so long. We all have to do this together. And this is not a sermon, despite my binary Analogy. This is not a put-down of men. This is not about uh, either-or. Because 
the book Half the Sky, it's written by two journalists, by Cheryl Wu Dunn and Nicholas Kristoff. They are reporters, and Nicholas Kristoff is a, um, a columnist for the New York Times. And in their decades of travel together, they started noticing the relationship of women and how women were treated to the economic and social viability of the nation and that there was a direct link and there are certain common threads that impact whether a country or a nation or uh, a culture is successful and it has to do with whether that second wheel is on the ground and helping things move forward it's a hard book to read. It's, um, it's painful to read about. They, they condense the issues that are problems for women internationally, and it has to do with um, sexual violence, sex trafficking. They call it gender violence, gender violence, which incorporates mass rapes and uh, genital mutilation. And then whether there is economic parity. And there have been studies that shown, and this is true not just worldwide, but also in the United States, if a, if a, if a family is successful economically, that's good. But if the woman doesn't have the capacity to earn a living, then that economic stability isn't maintainable. That it actually, the, the marker for success, financial stability, is whether the woman has an education and whether she has some means of earning income. Because there are so many ways that we tear apart family threads and community threads and tribal threads. I'd always thought of rape as a, uh, a violence done from one person to another. Not about sex, entirely about power. But this book helped me understand that, you know, rape has been used for, um, since the beginning of time, as a spoil of war. And that's how I always viewed it, too. Oh, yeah, the victors get to take advantage of whatever gems and privileges, be they material or sexual, of the other culture. But what half the sky and the work of Cheryl and, and um, Nicholas made clear is that using rape as mass rape as warfare, what it does is it tears apart the whole village and the whole family and the whole country. So in a sense, it doesn't get counted in the casualties of war because people are still alive. But it effectively leaves women and families for dead. They're culturally dead. They're socially dead. Ay, ay, ay. It's a hard read, but I recommend it. <laughs> but um, as I read through those stories, something that jumped out at me was there's a Unitarian church. They mention the Unitarian Church, don't, don't mention it by name, who gets involved with um, creating safe houses in 
Afghanistan for rape victims. So a lot of that book is, is not just um, a description of what's devastating, but some of the things that people have done powerfully. And, and uh, a couple, women who had escaped from Afghanistan went to All Souls in Alexandria, Virginia, and got their whole church involved. So I had to follow down that rabbit hole and go, oh, yay. Our sister church in Alexandria, Virginia, is doing something very, very immediate to be helpful. In fact, what's come out of their work, it's been going on. about a right-handed one a right-eared one (laughs) we are not that savage except for one clear statistic that we've talked about before and that is why on earth Do we incarcerate more women than anyone else on this planet? What's behind that? I read that statistic a lot, and I think about it a lot. But I can't tell you, what is it here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the state, that makes that so? Sorry. I have often said to people in passing, I'm not sure if I've said it from the pulpit, but I tend to stamp my foot and go, this culture is so mean when I read about how we are not supportive of not just women, but all sorts of classes of people. And sure enough, when I started researching what is behind this incarceration, this extraordinary amount of incarceration of women, The book I came up with was um, written by a sociologist called Susan Sharp. And the book is called Mean Lives, Mean Laws. And because of the word mean, it caught my eye. And reading through that book, lo and behold, it turns out that because of the poverty rates, because of the lack of really... Uh, exceptional education that is across the state all those same reasons that the journalists are documenting the problems around the world exist here so she talks about the women who are born into poverty uh, have problems with family systems that are alcoholic and brutal 
And these women turn to sex and prostitution because it's a weird place to get love, but it is. And alcohol or drugs because it sure helps shave off the, the sharpness of the pain. And then couple that with our extraordinarily rigid laws about drugs and about poverty and about um, prison systems that actually increase someone's debt. And we have really a perfect storm, a tsunami of factors. In prison, there is one more factor, and that is when you take a large number of women out of society children are left behind because virtually every single one of those women that are in prison have children so now we are really accelerating the cycle because those women, the children grow up with without mothers with parents and cousins or friends who have to step in and they turn to those typical ways of easing the pain so we've really created this dreadful tsunami So I think that's our charge as a church here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Sure, it would be lovely if we got involved with the worldwide movement. But the faith I have in you all is that we will look into our own hearts and systems and find all the ways where we only have one wheel on the ground. And it's not about blame. Something I realize as I say this I forgot to mention is Cheryl and Nicholas mentioned that women are also part of holding up the system. It's the mothers and grandmothers who say, oh, you have to do things this way that are implicit in the problem. So it's not just men holding women down. It is all of us to look at what, it, what is it in our culture, what is it in our state that leaves only one wheel on the ground. So I hope that we can get on our bicycles together. May it be so.